2: The Tom Bernard Show with Little Noisy Hackmaster <laughs> Raftery Basham, D.
3: co-host Catherine Brandt,
2: Andy Brad Bernard,
3: Cassie Schrader.
2: We will be right back. Thanks again to Kristen Bird. I love having Kristen Bird on this show. A couple of great guests coming up this hour too. Tom Bernard Show. Walzer Automotive Group started in Minnesota over 60 years ago. Most people know something about the Walzer way. Upfront, no haggle pricing. Work with one person from start to finish, or the free lifetime powertrain warranty on most vehicles sold in Minnesota. Please don't say, tell them Tommy sent you, because it sounds fake, and I hate it. Walzer Automotive Group, Walzer.com. Michael Bryant, Brad, Sean Bryant, what's the latest? Well, basically,
4: we're trying to represent people who have been hurt Then talk to them before they talk to an adjuster. Uh, one of the key points is to make sure you know what your rights are before you start talking to the insurance company, and they start asking you questions or they try to settle your case early and cheap. It's been good.
2: <laughs> it's been good, ladies and gentlemen. It's been good. And how do they contact you?
4: And, uh, e- either through our website, which is minnesotapersonalinjury.com, minnesotapersonalinjury.com, or at 800-770-7008. Michael Bryant,
2: Bradshaw and Bryant. Oh, I love this song.
3: la, la, la,
2: la. La, 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 la. How did this band ever come together?
5: What is this? Is this
2: Parliament?
1: Talking Heads. No, Talking
2: Talking Heads. heads. Oh,
5: well, yeah, they're all weird as hell. They are
3: weird, but... They're uh, very weird. They used to wear flower pots on their heads. No, that was Devo. That
2: That was Devo. Oh, wait, that's
3: right. Talking Heads was the ones that...
2: Life During Wartime. Yeah, yeah, yeah. One of the greatest songs of all time. Heard of a van that's loaded with weapons. (laughs) 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 It's all rumor. It's wonderful. They're all driving around, and I believe in LA, getting ready to go to war, <laughs> and there's no war.
4: Yeah, That <laughs> is
2: just wonderful. Oh, uh,
1: I like the song "Burning Down the House" because, like oh, okay. all the all the lyrics, it does. You can't tell what he's saying; it just sounds like he's going.
2: <laughs>
1: <laughs> so that's what I would do. I'd walk yeah, around the house happens. doing that, and then, and all of a sudden, you hear "Burning Down the House." <laughs> so it's yeah. We have fun with my kids. Love '80s music.
3: So
5: we're always blasting it in the house. So does Melissa. Does she? I wonder what the deal with that is.
3: Well, I cut. It was less angry.
5: Yeah, I guess the 90s is kind of when music started going downhill, isn't it?
1: My 11-year-old, he was jamming one day. He had his earbuds in. I'm like, oh, what are you listening to? And I grab his earbud and listen. He was listening to toto's africa
2: <laughs> and i'm like <laughs> <"That>... <laughs> yeah so i'm like
1: that was very random toto. charlie <laughs> he's like it's a good song so <laughs> i like
2: toto we yeah. got you. professor bradley hart Ooh, bradley hart how are you this morning professor or i'm doing very well how are you i guess it's afternoon I, I misspoke there uh things are going well we just uh was talking about the fact that america needs to calm down and stop taking sides over everything um, but we'll move on from that. We we're, we're just very briefly we're talking about how everything has to be about me now. Me, me, me. How? Do, what's for me? And how do I benefit from this? It's getting really old, Professor. I will tell you that. Don't you think?
0: Well, that's the social media world that we uh, live in, yep. I think, right? No. I mean, what's, what's Facebook and Twitter all about besides me, me, me?
2: You're 100% correct. That's why I hate it, and I don't go on it. <laughs> I'll, be, I'll be honest with you, Professor Hart. I told everybody to F off, and then I won, never went on it again.
3: <laughs> so there you have it. We still do it for the show, that though. That
2: made
0: you popular with your friends,
2: yeah. Oh, I'm semi-popular in some areas and not so much in others, but... Uh, but yeah, I was—I think I'll, I've tweeted like maybe Twice
5: ever yeah. I don't even know if I Would be able to remember my handle Because it's oh. just such a toxic
2: environment
6: I have a great question
5: For
2: mm. Professor Hart
6: Oh yes professor
2: One thing I will say and then Ralph wants to ask you a question Professor. Can we call you Professor Bradley Mr. Hart, Professor Hart Dr. Hart Oh you can call, call me Bradley we're all friends here Bradley's good I like Bradley um, Let me put it this way Um I might uh, be a little harsh on social media, but even Hitler has friends, so what the hell's that tell you? I, <laughs> I think I'll be okay. <laughs> I think I'll work out. You know, I cannot wait to talk to you about this because I don't do any uh, show prep ever. I do a morning show and an afternoon show, and I don't do show prep for either because I love to have a real reaction. So after Dr. Basham asked uh, Professor Hart, Bradley as we know him, then uh, we'll we'll get into the book. It'd be wonderful.
6: Yeah, uh, sounds great. Yeah, the book, uh, Hitler's American Friends. Right.
2: Mm-hmm. Yep.
6: In this day, in this uh, day of social media, are we less likely or more likely to have another Hitler?
0: Ooh, more. What do you that think? That is a very good question. Yeah. Well, I think you know, um, my my book talks a lot about propaganda. Um, yeah. Certainly, propaganda was a key aspect of German operations in the United States. It was a key aspect of World War II. Um, and I think social media in a lot of ways has made us more vulnerable to propaganda because of exactly yep. what we were talking oh, about, yep. the idea that um, it's personalized, that you have some sort of connection, you think, with the person posting it. And, in fact, you don't really know if the person posting it is actually a person at all these Right. Ways. So there's this aspect. Um, and, and one thing that came across in researching the book um, was just how frightening a lot of the people I talk about would have been with social media. I mean, certainly a Hitler figure, but take some other of the media figures that I talked about, uh, Charles Coghlan probably the most famous uh, or infamous radio host in American history. This guy had an audience of 28 million people in a country that was half the size it is today, so an absolutely huge audience. Um, Just imagine this guy with Twitter.
2: Oh, God, can you even imagine that? um,
5: There's still propaganda that people believe today from the World War II age, and they don't even know it's propaganda. Really? Like Napoleon being short. Well, that was before in World War II, obviously. Yeah. But that was British propaganda. He was never... He was not sure. Um, carrots b- making you able to see in the dark. That was British propaganda.
6: <laughs> what? It's like- true.
5: Yeah, they wanted people to think that their pilots could see in the dark,
2: so... Oh, yeah, that's true. They yeah. wouldn't fight them in the night. Not Bradley, I have to tell you weird. something. I, the, the only problem I have so far with the, the interview today is I have to g- get off my butt and get something done because... A guy who sounds like he's 18 years old as a professor.
0: <laughs> well, I, I don't know whether that's a compliment or not. But it you is a compliment. You. I'm <laughs> you sound, I am over the age of 18, I
2: promise. <laughs> you sound very, very young. I mean, you sound educated, but you sound very, very young. Um, well, the reason I didn't want to look ahead at your notes that were sent to me is because I've heard of all these people who were Hitler's American friends, supported Adolf Hitler, uh, the Third Reich supporters in the United States. so instead of just going, "Oh, wasn't it this guy, this guy and this guy?" I want to hear from you, because and, and then every time you hit one that, I, that I've heard before, I'll, I'll give it a little ding or something, because I've been hearing about this for a long time. All these people, these very, very prominent families in America, a lot of them had family members that, that loved Hitler. It's bizarre.
0: Yeah, absolutely. I think what comes across in the book is that there was a wide range and wide swath of America that did support Nazism and Hitler in this period. Um, Some of the more prominent names certainly would be from the business community. Henry Ford, of course, the inventor Mm -hmm. of the Model T, also a pretty diehard Nazi sympathizer who actually builds, Mm -hmm. as I point out in the book, a huge number of trucks for the German military knowingly, um, and reaps the profits from that. Uh, also receives a medal from Hitler commemorating his sort of contributions to the automotive industry and also to the German military. <laughs> oh, God. Um, so, you know, Henry, Henry Ford, personally a Nazi sympathizer, General Motors also is a German division, and there are certainly individuals that I name in the book who are expressing sympathetic views towards Nazism. So, the business community would be probably the most prominent place that you would find those folks. In terms of mass organizations, the, the most famous is probably the German American booth which had a membership yeah. somewhere between 100 and 200,000 nationwide. And this is a pretty huge organization for this period. And, and this is a group that, um, you know, they, they give uniforms to their supporters. They have an armed sort of bodyguard division similar to Hitler's SS. And their leader, a guy named Fritz Kuhn, goes around giving stem winders about how great Nazism is and how compatible it is with Americanism. So those are sort of the more hardcore groups. The group, though, that I think is really the most dangerous in the book is America First. This is of course a term that's come back into vogue these oh, days, yeah. Yeah. Um, but of course the most famous member of that is Charles Lindbergh, the famous aviator who um, you know, flies across the Atlantic in 1927, a few years later his son is abducted and sadly uh, killed outside his home, and then he goes to Europe, and this is the part of Lindbergh's story that is not really in the history books anymore, but goes off to Europe, visits Nazi Germany supposedly to provide intelligence to the U.S. military about aircraft production but pretty clearly becomes something of a Germanophile, if he hadn't been already. Mm-hmm. And so eventually ends up accepting a similar medal, actually the same medal that Henry Ford had gotten um, from Hitler, and um, this sparks a huge controversy. So he comes back shortly before the war and becomes a leader in America First, which is the country's leading anti-intervention, arguably isolationist organization. And this thing grows to have 800,000 members, mostly Ooh. in sort of the Midwest, but all across the country. So this is a huge group.
2: I don't know, Bradley, I, I really don't appreciate the fact that you pointed out a Minnesotan as your first Nazi sympathizer.
0: <laughs> 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 well, no, yeah, th- th- there you go. Um, so America First is actually based in Chicago. So right, there is this sort right. of Midwestern story that, that goes right. on here, which is, which is I think, interesting, and we can dig into that more.
2: I was born about 20 miles from where Lindbergh was born, so it's like, I'm, I guess I'm kind of, and my mother, by the way, was German, but there was never any of that in my family. Never. Never. It was unbelievable. <coughs>
0: Excuse me. Yeah, it's very interesting. I mean, certainly when you look at the German-American community, one important thing to keep in mind is that yep. um, the vast majority of German-Americans do remain loyal to the United States. There's no question about yeah, they that. they right. And most of those that get involved with these types of organizations, especially the German-American Bund, had been very recent immigrants. So they would come to this country in the 1920s. So obviously those were folks who had actually experienced the First World War on the other side.
2: Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. I, I, I do know there were stories told to me when I was a little boy that there were German enclaves in the state of Minnesota where during the war they marched through the streets with Nazi flags right here in Minnesota. It's unbelievable. That would
0: probably be the German-American boon. That would not that would not be surprising.
2: God, I just, it's kind of bold, I would guess. I don't know. it. it the whole thing, is it true... This might be a bit off topic, but I've always heard um, that if the United States hadn't gotten involved in World War II, that Hitler and Japan would have won the war. Is that pretty much the truth?
0: It's a difficult question, I mean, because obviously it's, it's counterfactual, so we don't really know. Right, I, I right. don't think that's true, because I think the Soviet Union would have probably ended up winning it, but it would have been a much longer and much bloodier affair, without a doubt.
2: God. It's just, I mean, that whole, what is it, the man in the high tower? Oh, man, yeah. in, a man high in the ca- high,
1: man in yep. the high castle. High yeah. castle.
2: That's all about you know everything east of the Rockies is is German and everything west of the Rockies is Japanese. Yeah, mm-hmm. I, I've seen a couple of episodes, but I haven't watched a lot.
1: It's a very dark series. Is
2: it true, uh, Bradley, that that the Kennedy family, Joe Kennedy, I had been told in the past because, first of all, I got. I, full disclosure here, my mother adored JFK because we grew up Catholic and he was the only Catholic president in the United States, so he was a big hero in our house, but yeah. the world word was always out there that Joe Kennedy was was a, uh, he admired Hitler himself is that true?
0: Yeah, I mean I'm not so much on that he admired Hitler, but certainly Joe Kennedy is the American ambassador in London uh, mm-hmm. prior to the war and when the war first starts, and he and Roosevelt have a huge falling out because Joe Kennedy actually wants to come home uh, in the face of obviously the, on- the German onslaught, and Roosevelt won't let him do so until after the 1940 election. So there's sort of a personal falling out between these guys, which upsets Kennedy a lot because he, of course, has a little kids. He has JFK, right. Robert Kennedy, and the rest of the Kennedy kids sitting in London while German bombers are heading towards them. So uh, Roosevelt then brings him back, and when when Joe Kennedy comes back after the 1940 election, he begins giving speeches around the country, basically saying that Britain's lost the war already. Um, and you can imagine how, how this is how this impacts public opinion when he's the former ambassador to the country, and actually the current ambassador too. He's just not there, so Roosevelt ends up firing him, and then Kennedy gets really unleashed and, and begins getting associated with these isolationist groups. So, I haven't seen any direct evidence that he's necessarily personally sympathetic to Nazism, but certainly he does not believe that Britain can win the war. He thinks that the war is already lost, and the U.S. should therefore not really get involved with with it at all.
6: Uh, people. People that were supportive of uh, Hitler in America, was that driven by the um, uh, um, when I say the prosperity that the Nazi Party had uh, given to Germany, or was
0: it driven by anti-Semitism? That's a great question. I think in some ways that's the core question of the book. I, yeah. I think it's three things. I think it is this this sort of view that Hitler has accomplished something miraculous, and also going along with that, that he is a staunch anti-communist. And we have to remember uh, that the American hey, people go. are very, very worried about the threat of communism. So the fact that this guy has indeed seemingly repaired the German economy when the U.S. is still mired in the Great Depression, Germany in 1936 declares the day of full employment. So you can imagine how remarkable this looks compared to a country that still has astonishing levels of unemployment by modern standards. So it's this sort of view of prosperity. It's this view that that Hitler's doing a good thing and also that he's not a communist, and therefore that's desirable. And this, of course, encourages a lot of business people to want to do business with him. There's certainly an element of anti-Semitism there, too. I mean, one thing I argue in the book is that anti-Semitism really unifies all of these disparate groups. And people like Charles Lindbergh even have these sort of deep-seated anti-Semitic um, sort of undertones to what they're doing. So anti-Semitism certainly very widespread in that period, and that is a key motivator. I think the third factor, though, is a lot of Americans genuinely did want to keep the U.S. out of the war for what we could even see today as, as good reasons. Um, one of the more sort of moving things that I discovered was that a lot of America First rallies, they have appearances by gold star mothers who have lost sons or yeah. husbands in presumably World War I, giving these impassioned speeches about how there should be no more Gold Star Mothers in this country ever again, and certainly not to serve the interests of the British Empire, as they see it. So it's a combination of those three things, and certainly the, the third group I mentioned is, is the most sympathetic, Well, certainly that's how I viewed them after
2: writing this book. I have to tell you, Bradley, when I was a little boy, um, I seven, eight, nine years old, about that age, uh, where I grew up, there was a Catholic area, a black area, and a Jewish area. And we were all on the north side of town, and we were surrounded by a freeway because they used to block Jews, Catholics, and blacks into their own neighborhood. They couldn't, you know, unless you wanted to walk across a freeway, you really couldn't get out. But one of the things that I remember is going up and down Plymouth Avenue in Minneapolis. Uh, When I was a real little boy, I would go to the drugstore, and it was a drugstore owned by the Desnick Brothers, a Jewish family, and I would see people in there with serial numbers on their arms, and I, I asked people, why, did, why do they have numbers on their arms? What is that all of it's a, It looks like a tattoo, but I found out at a very, very young age what that was all about. And it, I think I've been traumatized ever since. It, people walking around with serial numbers tattooed into their arms was very disturbing.
0: Yeah, and that's certainly an important facet of post-war life. I think one of the stranger things that I sort of started thinking about when I finished writing this book is that after the war... All of these groups are or all these individuals i should say are still very much around right so people who've Mm. been members of the german american boon don't just go away people who've been members of america first they're they're still around for decades there could even be members still alive today potentially yeah but then the reality of post-war life is that you have people who are holocaust survivors like you're describing potentially living next door to people that were involved with these sort of very dangerous groups and i think you know one one thing that's important to remember is that up until the um Cetera, until the Fair Housing Act of the mid-1960s, you could have restrictive covenants. So you could put, th- put clauses into deeds restricting a house from ever being sold to a Jewish person, Right, for instance. Right. And this was sort of a common tool of segregation that you're describing. But after that comes off, you know, there, there is this weird reality. And one interesting thing was that I, I looked really hard to try to find contemporary or post-war accounts from people who had been members of the German-American Bund or the Silver Legion, another group I talk about in the book, I just couldn't find any. So it would be fascinating to hear um, you know, hear from anyone who has had a relative that they know was involved with that or, or was yeah. themselves involved with it as a child or something. But this stuff just sort of gets swept under the rug um, because McCarthyism starts looking into people who have been communists, but there's mm-hmm. never really an attempt to figure out what happens to those who had been sort of aligned with, with
2: the other side. That really is bizarre that that's true. It's absolutely amazing to me. Um, the book is called Hitler's American Friends, the Third Reich's Supporters in the United States, Professor Bradley W. Hart, H-A-R-T, and the book, sir, is available everywhere? As of today. That's a good... Available that, everywhere. That's a wonderful thing. I'd like to have you back on to talk more about your book if you, if you have some time in the near future.
0: Absolutely. Let me know. We'll definitely set up. This has been a great discussion.
2: Wonderful. Thank you very much for your time, and I'll reach out to, uh, to you. Thank you, sir. Thank you very much. Yeah, have a great day. You too. We'll be right back. Tom Bernard Show. It's Tom here to tell you how easy it was for me to hit my goal of a 92.5 pound weight loss at Nutrimost Twin Cities in Plymouth with their weight loss plan. I started in March and in just over five months, I learned about clean eating and I now know the foods that work for me and the weight gain trigger foods. Very important. I'm now in the reset phase and then on to the Nutrimost Forever Maintenance Program, which I'll be talking about more in the weeks to come. Find out how to have success losing weight like I did. Attend the Nutramost Twin Cities in Plymouth free informational dinner on Monday, October 15th, 6.30 p.m. at Jake's in Plymouth. Those extra pounds melt away really fast with this easy program. Nutrimost Twin Cities in Plymouth will guarantee that you lose 20 pounds or more in just 40 days. Nutrimost helped me change my life, and they can help you too. Register for the Nutrimost Twin Cities in Plymouth dinner on October 15th Just call 763-333-7337. That's 763-333-7337. Stacked up over the airport. That is true. Thank you again to Professor Bradley Hart and his book uh, about Hitler lovers in America.
1: Well, it's very interesting because if you think about it, like a lot of those big players, that especially in business and stuff like that, like Henry Ford, uh-huh. how much influence did that have on American politics at that time no, as well, a lot. and how it shaped our politics now, and. You know, like you were saying about Joe Kennedy and how that caused a rift between him and Roosevelt. Mm -hmm. Honestly, I think the only reason why uh, Joe Kennedy took the stance that he did was because I think he was planning on running against Roosevelt. Uh, There's no question about that. he knew it. That's why he kept him over in London.
2: And when he failed to to do that, then he pushed every one of his sons to become president of the United States. He did. There's no doubt about that. Joe Kennedy was an opportunist. Whatever was popular is the way he would roll. Oh, I know. That's Here's a guy who used to call black people the big end constantly, but now, of course, the Kennedy family is known as, oh, they supported. it. No, they didn't. They they were racist as hell, as a matter of fact. Did you know look, that
5: Abraham Lincoln never supported uh, black people and white people intermingling? No, he never did. He nope. wanted,
2: Matter of fact, he wanted to free them to send them all back to Africa. Yes. People don't realize that
5: hmm He's seen as the great emancipator, but he was like... total. Black yes. people should well, never be able to become doctors.
2: Well, the
3: thing is, I mean, we have no idea what the world was like back then. I no. mean, we can read what people wrote and all that kind of stuff, but, but we just, really have no idea how, how... I mean, most of America was filled with Northern European people. Yes. Who had never seen a black person. And then the slave traders start bringing them over and telling them that they're just, you know, like cattle and that they're full of, uh, you know, problems, and and they don't speak the language. And I'm sure they scared people into saying, yes, they should be able to enslave them. I'm sure that's how it happened. Otherwise, why would it have even happened? Yeah. I don't know. The whole,
1: during the Civil War, I mean, that's such a, uh, it's so hard to, because there's so many sides to it. It's like, what was there? you know, people wanted to free slaves, (laughs) Mm -hmm. but what was their agenda behind it? Was it really to free them because they were humans and they should have equal rights? Or was it an economic uh, decision? Yeah, Rabilis. well, the North,
5: uh, a big part of why the North wanted to free the slaves was because it would cripple the South's economy. Right. Mm-hmm. And then they could yep. take them over, which is basically what happened.
3: Yeah.
2: So 100% correct.
3: So you're not saying that we're all very altruistic?
2: No. <laughs> or, or we're saying, when money's involved, uh, yeah. <laughs> or,
6: or saying well, the, there al- is that the, the altruism <laughs> underwhelms us. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, on the <laughs> other hand, the
5: uh, I read the um, like Declaration of Independence or something of South Carolina during that time. So if they had managed to secede from the Union, they had their own little Declaration of their own territory. Yep. And in it, they mentioned that even though they would be part of the civil war along with the slave owning states they would abolish slavery once they became independent oh. but no one ever talks about that no never no. heard that before it's interesting how a lot of like anti black people became the champions of black causes a lot of pro-black people became evil racists. And oh, yeah,
2: because it was a political, politically smart move to make.
5: The Civil War oh, has so been very manipulated.
3: Oh, so it has ho- it ever. I was hoping you were going to finish that sentence with a lot of anti-black people saw the error of their ways <laughs> and decided no, really. to become no. human beings.
2: Look, you if we're just going to talk straight up, look, I'm not a Republican. I'm not a Democrat. Who owned all the slaves? Democrats. Mm-hmm. Uh, all these things throughout the years, it was Democrats that kept them from coming into their their shops and their restaurants and all the rest of it. All of a sudden, and who was Just it that dropped the it. ball for the Republicans that didn't hold up the relationship between black Americans and, and the Republican Party? And again, I'm not Republican. I'm not thinking.
1: Well, hmm. I think where the tide turned was during, um, after, well, it was kind of still when Kennedy was in office. Um, yeah. you know, cause they were kind of champions for civil rights, but even during the whole problem they had in Birmingham and everything, cause they were pestering, uh, Bobby Kennedy to do something cause, uh, right. they were having such, you know, violence and everything going on down there. And they tried, actually the Kennedys wanted to stay out of it. They were more, um, pressing with, uh, campaigning and all this other stuff that was going on in the country at the time. Um. But after Kennedy was assassinated, that's when Johnson pushed you know the civil rights movement through. And that's where I think a lot of the um, civil rights leaders started gearing towards the Democratic Party. But uh,
2: what's amazing to me is, Linda Baines Johnson did more damage to black families than any other president oh, I know. in history.
1: I know, because of the Great Society.
2: Yeah, it, okay, we, you'll only get benefits if the father's out of the house. Mm-hmm. He broke up black families. Well, he,
3: wasn't that the same benefit problem? Weren't white families subject to the same law? Yeah, yeah,
2: okay. but it, it really affected the black community much more than it did the white
1: Well, community. see, because, I mean, the premise of the great society you know the welfare program that was um enacted then the premise was right but how they executed the the law was wrong what they should have done because there was a lot of um you know adult black people that weren't educated because they couldn't get that education because they were black but once once they had the opportunity to go to any school they wanted and stuff like that what they should have done instead of giving them money and saying, you know, well, you need to be a, a one-income household. Um, they should have gave them money for college and get them an education so they could be, you know, get good jobs and stuff in the future instead of just handing them money. Because right. with the lack of education they have, oh, even two yes. incomes in one home uh, was equal to one income to a white family. Well, so yeah, that would make sense. So you know, if they would have given them education. Instead of just saying, well, the dad has to leave, you only or have Or a to...
3: small sharehold where they or could something. grow their own food and have a few animals yeah. Yeah. and sell their products. And, and that's,
1: you know, and then you had the Vietnam War, which put our country into poverty. And then during the late 60s and early 70s, that's when you had the, the welfare program came where you had uh, the projects. Right, you know, they subsidized housing for them, so they put them all in these neighborhoods, and they were poor and uneducated, and that's kind of the st- system. I can't talk today. Systemic. Yes, yeah, that's good. Um, problem that they are facing today.
3: Right, so, and nobody's doing a thing
6: about is amazing. it. like. So. And, and, <laughs> and there is, uh, there are, there are uh, on YouTube, there are videos about Malcolm X being interviewed, and his criticism of liberal whites oh, using yeah. blacks oh, for mm-hmm. their. For yep. their economic and
2: political game. Yep, yep, that's 100. I mean, correct. I
1: just, I just had a good conversation with my, my stepson Linus, who's 16, and I was going all. We were t- just talking about all this with mm-hmm. uh, Lyndon Baines Johnson and what was going on in the South during right. the 60s, and, and you know, some of the stuff he didn't even know. And I'm like, well, they don't teach you this. No. You know, they only teach you one side, and because um, my mom, she was from North Carolina, and she mm-hmm. was in high school. She graduated in sixty-seven or sixty-eight, so it was right at that mm. in the South. Yeah, and she said it was pretty brutal. I mean, it, my grand, we had my mom had KKK crosses burned in her yard in Maxton, North Carolina. Really? Yeah, because my grandfather was the constable of this town oh, because yeah. it's such a small town, mm-hmm. and um, they didn't have a lot of uh, well. The police force wouldn't uh, help the black communities around there if they needed police. So a lot of times, uh, the black families, if they needed uh, law enforcement, they would go to my grandfather, and he would help them out. Whether it was for oh, yes, a so they, domestic yeah. disturbance, no, and they,
3: they didn't like that. No, nope.
1: oh, no, nope. nice. So there was a lot of, you know, you know, uh, racial slurs mm. towards my family, and that's why they moved to Greenville because it was getting pretty brutal. And my, my, my grandma, my grandfather and my grandmother are Dixie Democrats, Mm -hmm. but I think they kind of fall in that line of just, everybody's human. You know, they didn't fall into that trap of, you know, they should, I don't know what's the word, uh. They didn't. They, <laughs> I, exactly. I'm so tired. I didn't get much sleep last night. This prednisone That's is just okay. kicking my butt. Um, but they didn't. They didn't have that where I'm white, you're black. Let me help you because you're not, you capable know, capable yeah, helping yeah, yourself. Right, they didn't. Right. They never had that attitude. So um, I'm gonna show
2: you something to Catherine to cheer her up. Oh. Somebody am I sent. Sad? Somebody sent me this. No, I'm just
3: tired. I am tired.
2: Who's that? <laughs> Judy. 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 Why is You he, know why his picture's up uh, there? I have no there.
3: idea.
2: The most popular dogs by state, Minnesota Cavalier King Charles Spaniels. Mm. Really? interesting. Oh. The most That's popular dog in the state of Minnesota. I That's don't... interesting. And there's I, Jude when right I, there. Right.
3: I saw two at the, where did we go? Minnetonka Orchard. Yeah, but it was dog yeah. days. You could bring your dog.
5: Dog day
2: Jude afternoon. was a
3: complete maniac.
5: Yeah, he went no. insane.
2: crazy. Was I should lunatic? have brought I a cattle believe.
3: prod for him. God, he was horrible. <laughs> um and, oh. yeah, I, and I and there's a few that I see walking around every once in a while, but I see far more of them in Florida.
2: Well, yeah, they, I don't
3: see that many no. Cavaliers. I I even they're out in the suburbs. I would think <laughs> in Minnesota it'd be
1: like a lab or something. They're Everywhere. Yeah, labs are everywhere. Black labs, yeah. golden retrievers. retrievers
2: yes. yeah. All right. Kind of Pennsylvania, dog. the home state of a certain person in here, most popular dog in Pennsylvania. Do you have any idea? Afghan sh- hound. German shepherd. <laughs> I'm just or
3: Rottweiler. Oh Rottweiler.
7: Oh, Rottweiler. Oh, oh, Rottweiler.
6: Rottweiler. Even bigger. I, I don't
3: know. Big slobbery dog. Even
2: bigger.
6: Nice. I don't I really don't know. These numbers I like, I don't know if they're right.
2: We'll go with Dave. In Illinois, most popular dog in Illinois is, ladies and gentlemen, Chihuahua. a French <laughs> Bulldog.
3: Okay, oh, I, I know it's going to be something small because this of all the making, condo no, life. No, the,
2: national, <laughs> the, the, the number
6: one in the United States at one time, or a couple of years ago, were German Shepherds.
2: German Shepherd, absolutely.
6: And then number two were. Uh, either Labrador Retrievers or uh, one of those sort of things.
3: I think I, what happened, what yeah. happens with breeds, is they get super popular, and then they have bad problems, hip dysplasia, or yeah. some dang yeah, thing, true. and then they get very, very expensive to get a good dog that doesn't have all the medical problems. And I, then so then it goes away for a little while. I think they cycle in and out due to that. My my favorite
1: dog, and I had one, uh, Lucy. She was she passed away, uh, but she was lived to be ten. Um, oh, is a boxer. Good. Yeah. They are fun dogs. They're good family dogs. They're puppies until the day they die. And they're
3: I don't know. I just love boxers. Somebody used to work for me when I had the tax shop. She had a boxer and I let everybody bring their animals into work and mm-hmm. we had this kind of mean uh, shop cat <laughs> <laughs> and the boxer would la 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 it would, would like walk towards and look at the cat and go about fifteen feet around him and just la, 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 yeah. again. <laughs> so cute. Yeah, Lucy. She, she would like talk.
1: Fred. She would like talk and she sounded like Chewbacca from no. Star Wars. Yeah. So she Yeah, she would just sit and then when I'd eat, she would just sit there and stare at me and they have the you know the chops. Yep. And she would get bubbles popping. Yeah. <laughs> and Bing, just bling, she would just sit there and just with her dopey looking face and all oh, that they're so <laughs> she, cute she, my, uh,
6: they're nice dogs. my sister-in-law has a boxer She's had two boxers and and oh, my right. son Josh and my son-in-law Trevor have referred to what's in the boxers mind as this Cassie you
1: no, oh just the, the just white
6: noise, white noise. <laughs> in a boxers mind <laughs> so it's, it's, it's no, in a boxer. here's a picture here's a picture that's of the it. boxer
3: right hey. after that yeah, I wish my mind was <laughs> like that half the time. Yeah.
1: They are just their personalities are funny. I think Lucy, she constantly thought the word ball in her mind. She's ball, ball, ball,
6: <laughs> ball. That's right. That's what I said. See, yeah. there it is. That
3: white noise.
2: noise. It's just white noise. More white noise. That's phenomenal. I love that. As we a have, Leith Babbin.
3: Oh,
5: oh, Leith Babbin's with it? Oh. <laughs> Oh, so Babin, the um oh sorry the voice recognition software thought his name is life babbin, life saving.
2: It all works out in have. the end. Um, should we just take our break here? We'll yeah. come back uh, because we only have about forty-five seconds left here. I'll mention this quickly, and then we'll come back with Leif and our very special guest, in just a couple of seconds. It may not be clear who won Monday's debate between Pennsylvania Governor Tom Wolf and his Republican challenger, Scott Wagner, but one thing seems clear based on Tuesday morning's reaction. Moderator Alex Trebek lost. Yes, the Jeopardy! host took on the unusual what? duty, and the reviews have not been kind, with most of them centering on the same complaint. Trebek talked too much. <laughs> Trebek is Canadian. Why would you have him moderate a debate? In America, oh, he's not. He's
3: not an American citizen. No, he's Canadian. Oh, and
6: he's not a
2: reporter. I mean, he's not. He's not a reporter. He's a a game show host. I mean, how does that work? Uh, Yes, ladies and gentlemen, (laughs) we will be right back in just a couple of minutes. Our very special guest, Leif Babin, will join us right after this Tom Bernard show. Saber and Bryant, whatever it takes. Do, 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 do. Little Johnny Cash. As a matter of fact, I saw a movie that he starred in. He started in, I think, two movies. The first one, it was. They were trying to make him look as much like Elvis Presley as they possibly could. It was very cool, actually. Life Babin, how are you doing, Life? Is it Mr. Babbin? I would assume that's how you pronounce your name.
7: Leif Babin is correct, but uh, if you get that wrong, I've been called much worse.
2: Well, I exactly. just I went to I went to grade school with the Babin family spelled the exact same mm. way, so I assumed that it was uh, pronounced the same uh, as as uh, the family I grew up with. Leif Babin, ladies and gentlemen, the dichotomy of leadership, balancing the challenges of extreme ownership to lead and win. Uh, the New York uh, number one New York Times best-selling authors of Extreme Ownership comes a new and revolutionary approach to help leaders recognize and attain. The leadership balance crucial to victory. You know what would be a great uh, leadership balance for me is if everybody wasn't so self-centered and only do. It. Right now, should I call you Leif or Mr. Babin?
7: Life is perfectly fine,
2: Tom. All no, good. It works. I had, let me ask you a question very quickly, if you don't mind. Not that you know, I'm I'm expecting you to be an expert on all this stuff. But in the region where the name Leif was popularized, from country to country, it's it's pronounced completely differently. It's Denmark and where? It's those Iceland, Denmark. But I mean, it's Leif, It's life. It's leaf. Yeah. It's la. What was the one of those, Andy?
5: I don't remember. Yeah, it doesn't. I thought you might have had it
2: up in front of you there. Nope. But in any case, there's uh, the the, the life actually comes from
7: the uh, the old Norse pronunciation. My dad was pretty big in our Viking heritage and uh, read me uh, Icelandic sagas when I was a young kid. So sure. Uh, the old Old Norse is uh is, is where Leif comes from and, and the modern the modern uh, uh Scandinavian countries, uh kinda like German say say life.
2: They say life.
7: They still speak
3: Old Norse in Iceland, don't they? I think. That's what I was told. I,
7: Icelandic is actually the closest to uh to Old Norse. Mm-hmm. That's correct. That's what they said. Where did you where did
2: you grow up, Leif?
7: I am from deep southeast Texas. What we call the Piney Woods. Oh and, yeah, piney uh,
2: woods, yep. I uh, grew up grew
7: up in that area and, and uh, born and born and raised there. Spent uh, four years at Annapolis, uh, the Naval Academy, and then was stationed in San Diego, California, for twelve twelve years.
2: Excellent. The only reason and I, I asked you that is because, because we have a few uh, a few Scandinavians up Minnesota way. I, yep. I'm sure you know that. <laughs> just a, just a few. Right. <laughs> just a few. Uh, Can't
3: swing a dead cat.
2: <laughs> <laughs> yeah. There you go. Um, hey, Let's talk about Extreme Ownership. First, uh, educate some people who don't know what Extreme Ownership is.
7: Yes, sir. Well, extreme Ownership is our first book. Jocko Willink is, is the co-author as well. Jocko was my boss uh, and really what we call a sea daddy in the Navy. He was my mentor, and the, the guy who taught me to be the combat leader that I needed to be. Uh, he was my task unit commander at SEAL Team 3 back in 2005-2006. Uh, and I was one of two platoon commanders in in, uh, in that platoon. So a SEAL platoon is about 16 guys. Uh, and so a, a, a task unit is made up of two uh, 16-man SEAL platoons about a five-man headquarters element. So we fought in the Battle of Ramadi in 2006, which was some tough urban combat. We learned a lot of tough lessons learned, uh, and, we, and we learned the power of leadership on the battlefield. And, and by leadership, we're talking about every level uh, of the team. And we came back uh, and w- with those lessons learned and, and passed on, uh, the lesson we learned in the next generation of SEALs, and uh, we, after we got out of the Navy, and we started working with companies as, as business consultants and, and talking to them about leadership. We, we had a, a growing demand signal to, to, to write down the lessons that we learned, and that eventually became this book, Extreme Ownership, which is, the, the title reflects this, this foundational principle that there's nobody else to blame, there's no excuses to make, you've got to own everything in your world. And not just what you're responsible for, but everything that impacts your mission.
2: You know, that makes complete sense to me. And I love the fact that you guys are talking about that, this, you and Jocko. Uh, responsibility has just disappeared from the American landscape. What is that? Why did that happen? Well,
7: I think there's a lot of people out there that, that want to make excuses and want to cast blame and yep. want to point fingers. Yep. And, and I think the reason it happens is because ego that that's, it's It's one hundred percent ego because it's it's somebody else's fault. It's not your fault. Uh, and yet, when you look at the most successful people, in, in any walk of life, in business, in sports, uh, in, in radio, in in anything that they're doing, uh, they're they're people that uh, that they're not making excuses, they're not casting blame, they're actually figuring right. out a way to solve problems. And one of the things that we talk about with extreme ownership is everybody makes mistakes. We made all kinds mm-hmm. of mistakes. I've made I've made every mistake there is to make, just about uh, as a leader. And that's what our book extreme ownership is about. It's also what our following book here, dictionary of leadership, is about. All those mistakes. Uh, that, that, that we, we, uh, we made, and hopefully people can learn from that. But I, I think that's really what drives that is, is ego. It's not my fault. It's somebody else's fault. And the problem mm-hmm. is when you do that, then you never actually solve the problem. So the problems continue, and you keep having the same failures over and over and over again.
2: God, one of my favorite things of all time, um, Penn Gillette was interviewing a guy who did a puppet show for kindergartners and first graders, and this guy would travel around and his whole thing with the puppets is the puppets would talk to the children and tell the children how each and every one of them is special, each and every one of them is wonderful, you're your own unique individual and you are special, so Penn from Penn and Teller, he interviews the guy and says, how many children have seen your puppet show? And he said, over a half a million at this point, a half a million. And, Pendulet, you're going to have to edit this out, Gassy. Okay. Pendulet says to him, you've shown your puppet show to a half a million special children, and all those half a million, not one asshole. <laughs> 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 and I, I th- is, that's what we're talking about here. Why did it become so necessary to tell every child how special they were? I think it was a huge mistake. You know, look, you're all loved. You're all accepted, but are you special? Not necessarily. I don't know. I'll never understand why we did that. Well, I, I, look, all human beings, I think, are unique, certainly, sure, and, uh sure.
7: And, and, and 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 as a Christian, certainly, I, you know, I believe that God's got a, a plan for each and every one of us. But but I I think to your point, you know, when you think that somebody's owed something to you, and that yep. you know, it's it's that that uh, it's just a bad thing. I mean, it, it's nobody owes you anything, and you got to go out there and earn it. And, and you got to make a name for yourself, and you've got to work hard. And, and, you know, we Jocko lives by this mantra that really uh, infused uh, itself into Tasking a bruiser, enabled us to, to be highly successful in the battlefield. It's something that we live by in our company, Echelon Fern and that is discipline equals freedom. And, and if you want the freedom to excel in anything in life, um, then you've got to have discipline. you got to have that that, that discipline, focus, and effort to be able to do the hard work uh, to make things happen. And, of course, if, you, if you're going around thinking that somebody owes you something, uh, you know, that you're unique and special, it's all just going to kind of, you know, fall in your lap. Uh, you're you're going to be set up for failure, that's for sure. I don't
2: think there's any question about that. I, 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 I really like the approach you're taking to this whole situation. I, I think I've always believed in it that, hey, you know, if, if something went wrong and it was your fault, you need to stand up and go, that was my fault. And we're going to fix this, and I will be leading the pack to fix it. People don't do that anymore. It's and I don't want to you know go too deeply into this, but what we're experiencing right now in America, because nobody knows if Ms. Ford is is accurate. I'm not, I don't think she's lying. She just may not have the the proper memory. Uh, Ms. Ford is she wrong or is is uh, Judge Kavanaugh wrong? I don't understand people so well in life and Maybe you can help me with this: to bury the other side, to destroy entire families, just to prove that your opinion is right. What is that?
7: We live in a dark time, certainly, and you know it's it's, uh, it's pretty it's pretty ugly. It's pretty ugly to watch this stuff. Um, I've never seen anything like it in my right. lifetime. I've been on this earth for you know, only 42 years, but uh, uh, but it, it, it's definitely very unique and and uh, and troubling, very troubling. And I think. You know, one of the things that we talk about with the extreme ownership is, is it's incredibly empowering to just say, hey, I screwed up. Hey, I made a mistake. Yep. And, of course, those aren't magic words. You actually, to, you actually have to fix the problem. You actually have to put together a plan and implement a solution to solve that problem. Uh, but that's, that's definitely something that, uh, that, that it's a game changer. I think once people realize, like, oh, I actually don't have to be perfect. I actually don't have to, um, to, to, to act like I have it all figured out because nobody does. And you know the, the 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 trouble with extreme ownership. And, and by the way, there are when, when you're saying nobody does that anymore. I can tell you, we work with leaders all the time that absolutely do do that. We've had Good. over a million readers of extreme ownership, and so there are a lot of people out there that this resonates with. Now, if, if we'd have wrote this book decades ago, people would, have, you know, my my grandparents' generation, my parents' generation would have probably said, hey. Uh, uh of course that's the way it is Uh, that's obvious you know why do you need to write this stuff but Mm -hmm. i think it it was something that we we knew needed to be written for this time the trouble with extreme ownership though is is you know and our 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 failing there was that while this concept of extreme ownership and and you need to be extreme and your ownership of problems and, and and failures and mistakes most of the time in, in, in just about every other situation, leaders don't – you don't want to be extreme. You want to be balanced. And, and that's why we wrote the second book, The Dichotomy of Leadership, because mm-hmm. you've, you've – it's, it's the most common problems that we see leaders uh, – as they're trying to implement the principles that we talk about in the last three years since extreme ownership came out, we, we would see this struggle. You know, leaders are going – they're too far in one direction. They, they'd be uh, – a leader has to be aggressive. And they have to be able to solve problems and make things happen, and yet you can't be too aggressive. You've got to mitigate the risks you can control. You've got to analyze the situation. You, you don't want to just run to your death on the battlefield uh, or, or take too much risk in the business world, and, and that can put you in, in a worse situation. Uh, the, the, and, of course, on the other side of that is, is not being aggressive enough. So that, that you know, if you're sitting there and over-analyzing and over-analyzing and over-analyzing and you're not making decisions, well then then the, the bad guys are going to maneuver on you on the battlefield and your competition is going to maneuver on you, uh, you know, in the business world and, uh, and that's going to result in failure as well. So trying to modulate between these multiple forces that are pulling leaders in different directions is why we wrote this follow-on book, the Dichotomy of Leadership.
2: Leif, what I'm about to tell you is that obviously no great impact, but... I was kind of stunned by the results. I, I wanted to test people on taking ownership of what they've done, uh, or things that happened because of, of the way the decisions they made or the way they acted. Uh, I do a morning show as well, and on that morning show a couple of years ago, a friend of mine and I played in a golf tournament. And the next day after the golf tournament was over, I went on the air and said, because uh, somebody asked me, how would the golf tournament go? And I said, we lost, and it was my fault. And they said, what do you mean? I said, if I had played to my uh, handicap, we would have won the tournament. I didn't, therefore it is my fault that we lost the tournament. I cannot tell you how many negative comments I got about that. What kind of coward are you to do that kind of thing? It's like, no, it's the exact opposite. It was my fault, I'm accepting the blame, and maybe what I could do is try to be better next time. But they didn't see it that way. They saw it as kind of like a, oh, you big baby.
3: Admitting weakness, maybe.
2: Admitting weakness, which I, I looked at it exactly. How do you admit weakness or how can you see strength in a mistake that you made? It's very difficult for most people, I guess.
7: It it is difficult for most people. As we say, these things are simple but not easy. I mean, the the things that we wrote about in both Extreme Ownership and Dichotomy of Leadership, they're not complex. They're not deep theory learned in a a classroom, and yet they're extremely difficult to implement. And I think it is hard for most people, Uh, and some people may see that as like, oh, I can't admit that because it's weakness. And yet, if you think about people that you work with, if you think about people that you know and have close association with, when when they say, hey, that's my fault – do you do you and you see them taking ownership of something, do you do you lose respect for them or do you gain respect for them?
2: Yeah, I do gain respect. You, you gain respect. There's no you doubt gain about you it. gain
7: respect for them, Absolutely. No and yet when you see someone who clearly screwed up, who clearly made a mistake and they're blaming someone else or making an excuse for it, you lose respect for them. Absolutely. So so it's the complete opposite, I think, of of those folks. And sometimes the loudest voices in the media or on social media or whatever it may be, uh, you know, or calling on the radio show. I, I think they're uh, they're not representative of the of the whole. No. Um, and, and I think uh, I think taking ownership is, is the only way to solve problems because it's the only way you're ever going to get better. And when you look at folks that uh, that are highly successful in anything they do in life, whether it's their golf game or uh, they're in professional sports or they're um, you know at the, at the top of uh, of their industry in the business world, in um, the SEAL teams, I mean, they're 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 humble people. They're willing to check their yep. egos. Uh, to get better all the time. Because when you can't check your ego, it's something Jocko and I say all the time, that the most important quality in a leader is humility. And the reason is because when when you're not humble, when you can't check your ego, you you, you can't listen to anybody else because you got it all figured out. You You, you can't... You learn about new technologies or new ways of doing things, new methods. You can't educate yourself uh, about new, new, uh, more efficient ways of, of doing what you're trying to do. You start losing uh, respect for your enemy. You get complacent, or, or your 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 competition. And the most, uh, the worst part of all is that you can't take that brutally honest assessment of yourself that hard look in the mirror that says, where am I screwed up? Where am I weak? What can we do better? You know, how can I improve? How's my team, uh, where can my, my team improve? How, where can we improve our strategy to produce the results we need to? Uh, and that is the the key, I think, to being successful in anything that you do.
2: It is a wonderful thing. The book is called the dichotomy of leadership, balancing the challenges of extreme ownership to lead and win Leif Babin, B-A-B-I-N. Leif, you got to come back. We got to talk more about this because it's, uh, I, I couldn't agree with you more. It's a wonderful thing. So thank you for putting the books out. Appreciate it. Thanks for
7: having me on. love to be back home with you
2: any We'll get it done. Thank you very much, sir. That's going to do it. Talk to you later. Tom Bernard Show.